So receive these words, Judges 14, 1 through 4. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and he told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all her people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Please have a seat, and uh, I invite you to pray with me. We thank you for adopting us, calling us into your family. Uh, For those who are here just kicking the tires on Christianity, just curious about, okay, what is this thing the church, what, who is this person in, um, and, and give them eyes to see and ears to hear. We, we pray that really you would do that for all of us. We all need you to constantly be providing this supernatural gift of attentiveness and receptivity and hunger for your word. We pray that you would remove the, the uh, tyrannous distractions, uh, whether that's the impending school year or some kind of household maintenance that we're trying to figure out or a relational situation that's tricky or dramatic. Uh, we, we We pray that you would cause us to feast on your word right now and to savor it um, and that really um, your word would be the dominant thing that causes us to uh, rightly navigate all those other things in life, that your word would inform uh, everything about our lives as the most relevant, active, and living power that we possess, this gift of God to us, uh, the word, um, which talks so emphatically and so consistently about your love folks like us who who you have come to seek and save and call to yourself. Uh, We thank you for that story. We thank you that we get to Uh, get a a, a fresh dose of that merciful uh, saga this morning. We pray that you would uh, press it deep into our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here we are uh, looking at kind of the first major episode of what I'll call the Samson narratives. Uh, We saw in chapter 13 kind of the prelude to to Samson's life out of the womb, but now he's, he's out. He's in the world, and he's a bull in a china shop. He's, he's like, he's a force to be reckoned with. Um, Samson, he's kind of like the Michael Jordan of the book of Judges. Uh, you know, what Michael Jordan is to the NBA, that's what Samson is to the book of Judges. Uh, Samson's exploit, exploits are legendary. If there's one judge who has clearly made the book of Judges popular, it's Samson. Um, Here in Judges 14, uh, we have basically the equivalent of what uh, Michael Jordan was in the mid-1990s, okay? Uh, So Michael Jordan of all time, and and even before he really got going, uh, people people forecast this. They saw this coming. Um, But then in the middle of Michael Jordan's career in the 90s, right, the middle of the 1990s, this news report came out that that the greatest basketball player of all time was going to begin yet another season as a professional athlete. 
And we all assumed that, well, if he's, if he's going to continue as a professional athlete, then, then we all assume he's going to be playing basketball because that's what he's really, really good at. He's the best at this one particular sport, basketball. But in 1994, we found out that Michael Jordan wasn't going to play basketball. He preferred instead to play minor league baseball. No one really saw this coming. This is what he preferred. This is what was right in his own eyes. And it was shocking. And that's what's going on here at the very outset of, of Samson's sort of official life as judge of Israel. Uh, in verse 1, we read that Samson goes down to this place called Timnah. Now, now we're told in, in verse 4 that the Philistines rule over and oppress the Israelites at this particular moment in history. And so based on what we've read about, in, about Samson in chapter 13, we, we overwhelmingly assume that Samson is going to Timnah, this Philistine-occupied territory, to declare war on the Philistines. Uh, Samson must be going to Timnah to wage war and destroy the Philistines because this is his destiny. If you go back to the, to the previous chapter, specifically verse 5, you see that Samson is very specifically uh, forecast to be the destroyer of, of the Philistines. He's going to save God's people from, from the oppression of the Philistines. Uh, Samson, he's not just any judge. Again, Samson is like the greatest, like most destructive force in the book of Judges. Uh, similar to the way, again, Michael Jordan was the greatest in the NBA. Um, Michael Jordan, as I mentioned, wasn't just like the greatest player. He was destined to be the greatest player. Uh, even at the end of his college career, uh, the, the, the authorities and the, the coaches and all of the like, leading pundits in the NBA, they, they saw that okay, the greats, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, were phasing out, and this, this new character was, was coming in, and he was fated to be the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And even companies like Nike recognized that we need to, we need to jump on this guy's coattails because he's going to be better, he's going to be bigger, he's going to be more prolific than anybody who has ever come before him. We're going to offer this guy, Michael Jordan, an unprecedented shoe deal. And, and Nike thought, you know, maybe within the first four years, we can hope to expect maybe in the ballpark of $3 million worth of Jordan shoes. But he was so destined for greatness, and everybody knew it, that they sold, I think it was like $126 million in the first year. It's, it's crazy, like all of the hype, all of the expectations that were allocated and aligned with, with MJ. And it's the same way with, with Samson. All the buildup in chapter 13. The expectations have never been higher. Before he was born, Samson was set apart as Nazir, set apart, consecrated by God to be it was his destiny. There are these explicit prophecies we saw at the end of the previous chapter that the, the spirit is beginning to stir in Samson. And then we begin the 14th chapter with this note about how Samson's going to Timnah. So again, we're thinking, of course, he's going to Timnah to destroy the Philistines. Oh, baby, get ready. The Philistines are about to get it. After decades of oppression, our, our, our judge... The, the great Samson is going to go and he's going to, he's going to deal with our enemies. But then in verse 2, we read that Samson goes to Timnah and instead of coming home with Philistine blood on his hands, he comes home with bridal magazines. He's, he's met a woman. 
He, he sees this Philistine lady, and the narrative completely shifts away from Samson's destiny to destroy the Philistines. And for the moment, we are just stuck with Samson's preference to marry a Philistine woman. And Samson, he doesn't just kind of prefer this. He's adamant about this. He is very, very demanding about this. He says to his dad, get her for me. She's right in my eyes. I don't care how you feel about this, mom and dad. This is what I prefer. This is what I want, and I demand it. And at first, this first big moment in the, the narratives of Samson's life, it seems like Samson's preferences are the prevailing preferences. This is the prevailing agenda in the story of Samson. Right out of the gate, it seems like we're just stuck with this very unwanted, disappointing story of Samson finding this Philistine woman and saying, I want her, I demand her, get her for me. And we need to pause right here and take a moment to honestly reflect on this inescapable fact of life. We need to acknowledge that this is often how life feels. Uh, it feels like unhealthy preferences, sinful, selfish preferences are the prevailing agenda in the world. We, we look around at life and honestly it looks like God's not sovereign doesn't feel that way doesn't look that way this this good gracious God who is sovereign over everything I look around at the world and honestly I don't I don't get the impression that his agenda is the dominant agenda lots of days I look around and it looks like selfish sinful people are getting whatever they want and, and it's really depressed. That's how it feels. I mean, think about some of the stories God tells us in Scripture, like the story in Genesis of the character Joseph. So when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and then as a slave, he was wrongfully accused by his boss's wife, and then he was subsequently put in prison, and he helped people out in prison, and then they got out of prison and he told them to remember him, and then they didn't, and he was forgotten. Just year after year, wave after wave of, of really disappointing, hard-to-deal-with situations and circumstances. And yes, there's this scene right at the end of the book of Genesis where, where Joseph says, you know, but all of that, all of that stuff that people meant for evil, God used for good. Yes, yes, that is true, but you realize there, there were probably... A few decades where Joseph had to really wrestle through this, this tension, this, this irksome fact that, man, there's a lot of moments where it doesn't really feel like God's doing much. It feels like selfish, sinful agendas are the prevailing agendas in my life. What about the character of Esther? I really imagine this. Imagine that that day when the Persian government sent people to, to basically capture Esther and then enroll her in the Persian king's harem. I mean, Esther is a victim of sex trafficking. This is what's going on. This is not some, some you know, fairy tale Disney movie story. This is a dark, very gut-wrenching story. And, and Esther feels it, and her relative Mordecai feels it, and it's, it's difficult. It doesn't feel like God's doing anything. And y'all feel this way. There are people in your life, maybe you have you know, mommy issues or daddy issues or sibling issues or you've got a friend in your life and it just feels like 
their preferences aren't, aren't really healthy. They're not good. And, and it, they just, they bleed into my life and it feels like they get what they want all the time. And it's deeply painful to me and it's disappointing to me. And it just feels like that's it. That's what's happening. And I don't know what to do about it. And it feels like God's not engaging with it. He's not, he's not really working very hard to correct these problems and these tensions and these really difficult circumstances. That's how it feels. And Samson's parents are feeling that way right now. When their son goes to Timnah and he doesn't fulfill all the prophecies of being the judge, the deliverer of Israel, but instead he turns with this demand to get that Philistine girl for me, Samson's parents are deeply pained by this. They're deeply discouraged and disappointed by this. So we need to wrestle with that. We also, maybe more primarily, need to wrestle with the fact that we are like Samson. We have these preferences that we, that we put on pedestals and we demand life on our terms because it's right in my eyes. It feels right to me. It feels good to me. We all push our preferences in ways that are not healthy. It's not good for us. It's not good for other people. Uh, and we, we intuitively know that if we just simply said, look, this is the way I want it. This is my preference, and I demand it, and, and you're just going to have to get on board with it. We know that that sounds selfish, you know, and probably all of us care at least to some degree about what people think of us. We don't want to be thought of as selfish. And so we have these really creative, shrewd ways of arguing for our preferences as if they were principles. So let me give you an example from my life. I am an uptight control-free, kind of OCD guy. When I come home, I want things like just precisely the way I want them. So this happens and manifests itself in all kinds of ways. But let's just take, take making your bed. I, I, I think making your bed is a principal thing that everybody should do. And I can argue for this as a principle. I can, I can send you YouTube videos of very successful, well-adjusted people saying, the first thing you got to do every morning is you got to get up and you make your bed. You've accomplished something simple. You're on a good trajectory for your day. It's just a healthy discipline. But honestly, it's just a preference. It's just a preference. It really is. It's not a principle. Tyler getting life on his terms because he feels very strongly about it, that's just preference. And honestly, what I need more than anything, is not to get life my way, to not have life on demand the way I want it. What I need is for people to, to risk offering me pushback. That's what I need. I, I need people to, to dare to offer me at least a little bit of pushback against my precious pedestaled preferences. Someone to love me enough to be courageous enough to say, hey, you could be wrong. Did you know that? You don't get life on your terms. You don't get your, your preferences all the time. And honestly, that's one of the most miraculous, glorious things that we are shown in this, this first brief episode in Samson's life. The miracle that he gets some measure of pushback. His father and mother don't just roll with this. They don't just simply comply. Look at verse 3. Maybe it didn't hit you as a miraculous, supernatural thing when I read it, but this is so good. It is so glorious. Samson's father and mother... First say in response to Samson, you know, is there not a woman amongst the Israelites, the tribes of Israel, that you, that you could perhaps marry? I mean, do you have to go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines, the, the oppressors of Israel? 
You know, this, this would be like in the 1940s if you were living in Germany and you were a Jewish family and then your son comes home and he says, I, I've met a Nazi woman. I've met the daughter of one of the Nazi SS officials or Gestapo officials. He'd say, what? You want to connect our family to the oppressors? To the people who are syst systematically dehumanizing us and tyrannizing us? We, we want to say that's not something we're, we're, we're eager to endorse. We want to offer at least some measure of pushback. Now, let's clarify here as we zoom into this particular scenario in the life of uh, Samson and his family. God never, listen to this, this, this is important we clarify, he never, ever opposes interracial marriage. He doesn't. It's never about race. It's never about ethnicity. God adamantly opposes interfaith marriage, but he never opposes interracial marriage. In fact, you can go back to one of God's best friends, Moses. And, and you can see quite clearly that Moses, this Hebrew man, married a Cushite woman. And, and, and we have pretty dramatic narratives about how Moses' sister Miriam and his brother Aaron tried to oppose this interracial marriage. And uh, in the book of Numbers, God shows us that he will punish, not Moses, but he will punish Miriam for complaining about this. He will make her leprous for a little while to cause her to realize and, and help her realize that she's in the wrong, not, not Moses. And this storyline continues. I mean, what about Rahab the prostitute? She's from Jericho. Her whole city was destroyed because the people in Jericho had filled up the full measure of God's wrath against them. And so God sent Joshua and his troops into Jericho and they destroyed the city. They put a curse on the city. And yet one family in Jericho was saved. The family of Rahab the prostitute. They converted. They were enveloped into the society of the Israelites. And Rahab meets this guy, Solomon, this Hebrew guy. They get married. They have a son named Boaz. Boaz goes on to marry a girl named Ruth. Ruth is not a Jewish woman. Ruth is a Moabitess. See, God has no problem with interracial marriage. In fact, he celebrates it. He endorses it. He loves it. Interfaith marriage, that's a different thing. So we need to clarify that. The primary point here, though, is that Samson is determined to do what is right in his own eyes. And again, the most, the most glorious, miraculous, specific detail in this first episode from, from Samson's life is that his parents offer him some pushback. Praise God for pushback. It's so good. It's a miracle. It's not a stretch to say it is a miracle if you actually have people in your life who are willing, who are courageous enough to push back on your sinful preferences. Because we can all admit it's so much easier. It is so much easier to simply be a people pleaser, isn't it? it, it at a minimum, it's easier when you hear someone saying things or making decisions that are just not, are not good, they're not healthy. It's easier to just look at them and go, hmm, well, that's interesting. You know, you just use this magical, ambiguous word, interesting. Because you, you don't want to step on their toes. You, you don't want to say something to them that might cause them to react toward you with defensiveness and violence. And so you say, oh, well, that's, that's, that's interesting. And then you just try to find the off-ramp and just not have to talk about this anymore. So much easier to do that. And I get it, because you love them, chances are they're going to get defensive. I, I would say... 70%, I'm kind of making up this statistic, 
Um, what do they say? 85% of all statistics are made up. Uh, but I think this is in the ballpark of what's accurate. It, it might even be a little conservative. At least in my experience, 70%, if not more, of the people I've tried to confront, uh, they end up getting really mad. I, I know uh, the people in the life, the brief history of East Charlotte Prez, the people who've who've really been like so off track that we've had to really kind of seriously rebuke and admonish um, a high percentage of those people. When, when we've offered them pushback, they just leave. They leave with some degree of disdain and hostility you know, in the way they depart. Uh, some people leave and then end up filing very um, intense complaints. They say, I've been mistreated. can't believe you would dare to tell me that I'm doing something wrong. So all that to say, it's a glorious miracle when someone actually has the courage to tell you, hey, I don't think you're doing it right. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I don't sit in a place of judgment. I'm not condemning you. It's just I, I need to confront you because I love you. Now, I know the million-dollar question, uh, at least most of us are probably starting to, to, to trend in this direction of, okay, so if I confront somebody, I mean, what if they don't listen? What if they just don't want to hear it? Well, that's what's going on here. Samson just outright rejects his parents' concern. And no doubt this is very discouraging. No doubt this is very disheartening for Samson's parents. This, this inevitably, uh, to, to offer someone truth and love and then to have them reject it, this is painful. This is disappointing. To, to say to Samson, you really shouldn't be marrying into the, the Philistine clan uh, and then to have him say, that's what I'm going to do. I don't care what you think. That's painful. That's disappointing. And so what does the Bible provide for us, for, for us if we're reeling from, from some version of feeling pain and disappointment? Well, the Bible at a minimum offers us all of these poems right in the middle of our, of our scriptures, the Psalms. Uh, God says, what you need to do with this pain and this disappointment that you're going to feel at some point in life is you need to process it. So these are direct quotes from some, from some of the Psalms, the poets in Scripture, the worship leaders in Scripture. They say this very candidly, very honestly. They go to God. They, they say, God, I need to talk. I need to have a conversation with you. And they say things like, I'm languishing. It's, it's not all sunshine and lollipops and roses and I'm too blessed to be stressed. It's, no, I'm very, I'm very stressed. I'm, I'm languishing. My soul is greatly troubled. God, honestly, my pain, my pain, it's like the only thing I can see. It's, it's always in front of me. It's ever before me. And, and God, I, I have some honest questions. Why are you not involved? This is what it says in the Psalms. Why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself? Can you imagine saying that to God? God, it feels like you're not here. It feels like you're hiding. It feels like you're deliberately trying not to intervene and involve yourself in my life. That's how it feels. And bear in mind, when the psalmists say this, this isn't just something that you're allowed to do. This is prescribed. God wants to be worshipped. And so he gives you a worship book. It's called the Psalms. And so God says, part of your worship is you honestly say stuff like this to me because I see it and I know you're feeling this way and so you lead with that. You tell me how you're honestly feeling. I'm not worshipped. God says I'm not worshipped by you pretending that you're not feeling this way. <laughs> pretending that you're a mature Christian and, and you're just transcending all of this pain and disappointment. No, 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 no. 
You, you're languishing. You feel like God's not inter, in, intervening or involving himself. He's hiding. You say that. And then these psalmists will often start to, to say things like, and so what do we do? Well, we wait for the Lord. I don't know what to do. So I wait. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord. And I, I hope in his word. I just cling to the word. I press into the word. I, I don't see a lot of formulas or solutions offered to me, but I just I steward the mysteries of the stories that God has told me, and I, and I wait. I wait for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. That's what I do. And then you remind yourself of the facts. Despite, things, despite how things might feel, you say things like in Psalm 10, you say, and the fact is the Lord is king. I've already said it doesn't feel that way. It feels like he's, he's off hiding himself. But, but he is king and he is close. He hears the desires of the afflicted and, and he is sovereign. I'm going to preach that truth to myself. And even in the most discouraging, painful, disheartening circumstances, the truth is the, the inescapable eternal fact is that God is at work. I wrestle through how I feel, how it doesn't feel that way, and then I, I, I come back to this, this fact. God's at work. God's purposes are going to prevail. And he's probably going to orchestrate his purposes and bring his purposes to completion in, in a way that I wouldn't have thought about, in a way that I wouldn't have predicted. And that's what we see in verse 4. It says that Samson's father and mother did not know that this was all from the Lord. It was actually from the Lord. The Lord, believe it or not, is seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Even with this really bad decision Samson is making, God says the prevailing fact, the, the, the primary agenda and purpose at work here is my agenda. And I am seeking an opportunity against the Philistines, even through these very imperfect circumstances. And my agenda will prevail. Um, we need to clarify that verse 4 is not suggesting that Samson's parents now celebrate their son's decision to marry a Philistine woman. It's not saying that at all. But it is describing a scenario where we have to steward a mystery and we have to sit in some tension. As we've already said, Samson's parents, uh, they are called by the Psalms, the worship book of, of God to his people, they are called to worship God through honestly expressing lamentation uh, but at the same time, as they do that, they've got to come to God in, in this, this posture of, of being honest, dumping out all of their baggage, all of their burdens right in front of God. And what's going to happen, picture it like this. You're, you're carrying this burdensome backpack of all these life stressors. And God says, prayer and worship are, are where you come to me and you dump that out. Right? You don't hide it. God doesn't ask, how are you doing? And you say, yeah, good, fine, fine. You just lie to him. No, you, you tell him how you're feeling. You dump out all the contents of the backpack. And when you dump all that stuff out on the table, a couple of things get to happen. God gets to look at all of it, right? He already knows what's in there. But he, with you looking at it and him looking at it, he gets to say, okay, let's, let's talk about this. And then God gets to put his fingerprints on it. God gets to, to say, okay, here, here's what I'm going to say about these things that, that you've dumped out. So let's say you're going on a long hike. you got to carry a pack. You know you're going to need some kind of sleeping pad, right? But when you dump out the contents of your pack, it turns out that you've decided to carry a, a full-size or a queen-size mattress. And God says, okay, look, 
Hiking is, is strenuous and it's grueling. There's no getting around that. But you're making it actually harder on yourself. You're taking this category of needing like a sleeping pad and instead of getting something from REI, you just pulled the queen size mattress off your bed. And so we can make a little bit of an adjustment there. It doesn't solve the problem of you walking and the grueling realities of hiking, but it, it, does, it does bring some clarity to how you're exacerbating the problem. Like some of these stressors and these anxious things in life are self-inflicted. Or here's another example. You know you need water if you're going on a long hike, but instead of like a Nalgene or a Camelback bladder, you have a Home Depot five-gallon bucket with no lid, just full to the brim. And you're like, oh, it's so hard. It's sloshing out. And God says, well, yeah, that's a dumb way to carry the water, right? You still have to carry water. It's still going to be grueling, but you're making it harder on yourself. This is a self-inflicted burden. Or sometimes it's kind of minor. It's just he adjusts the straps. Like you're wearing the backpack way down here by your knees. And you still, oh, it's so hard. And he's like, well, we can adjust these. We can, we can make it a little easier. Maybe sometimes it's just your walking strategy. Like this walking is so grueling. And he's like, well, you're walking backward with your eyes closed. Stop doing that. <laughs> right? Like turn around, open your eyes, see where the rocks and roots are. You know, sometimes that is part of the process. But again, you're still walking. It's still grueling. You still have to carry a pack. You're still following a suffering servant, crucified king who says, follow me in the way that I, in the way I live, in the way I lead. And as you follow him, the most, the most comforting thing that God offers you is the fact that his purposes will prevail. You know this verse, Philippians 4, where Paul says to the church in Philippi, do not be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything, but everything. In everything, in prayer and making your requests to God and thanking God, um, talk with him, pray to him, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. Now, what does that peace that surpasses understanding and that peace that guards your heart and your mind, what's the epicenter of that peace? I mean, what's that really about? Well, it's, it's what verse 4 of Judges 14 is talking about. The, the, the deep peace that God is offering you is not some, some off-ramp, you know, this, this, this way of exiting the pain, but it's working even in the midst of your pain and your disappointment. That is true. And really embracing that as, as what is primarily true, not just peripherally true, but the prevailing purpose of, of this whole narrative is the purpose of God, despite how things might feel and despite how things might look. I want to read four different sentences, just four different brief sentences from the prophet Isaiah ranging from chapter 14 to chapter 55. And before I read these sentences, here's what I need you to do. And if you've tuned out, I need you to, to re-engage right now. And I, I really need you to do this, okay? This is for you. You need to right now think about a scenario in life that is causing you pain and disappointment. You need to think about something like that. It shouldn't be that hard. Uh, I know uh, for some of you, that's something going on in your marriage. I know that for some of you, that's something going on with a friend. I know that for some of you, it's just everything in life is just kind of converging and crashing down on me. And it's hectic and it's crazy. Uh, for some of you, it's work stuff. It's navigating 
uh, just stress and maybe relationships at work, whatever it is, okay? You need to think about, okay, this is where I'm stressed out. This is what's causing me grief and pain or confusion and disappointment. All right, now, as I read these verses from Isaiah, these are, these are benedictions. These are promises, guarantees from God. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to let these truths into that pain. And I need, I need you to, to, to see how these truths will permeate that pain and disappointment. Like leaven working its way through dough. Jesus says, my kingdom is actually permeating this broken, dark, corrupt world. Like leaven working its way through dough. These truths can pierce into and permeate whatever kind of pain and discouragement and disappointment you're navigating right now. All right, here they are. Isaiah 14, God promises, I have planned. I have a perfect plan and so it shall be. As I have purposed, so it shall stand. Eternal, guaranteed. Isaiah 44, God says of a pagan king, King Cyrus, I have actually appointed him as my shepherd. I'm going to use a pagan king, a non-Christian pagan king, and I'm going to establish him as my shepherd to fulfill my purposes. Isaiah 46, God says, I declare the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. I say, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish my purpose. And finally, Isaiah 55, my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. And as we think about that last one, the word, what's the epicenter of the word? What's the big emphatic nucleus of the word? Well, it's the scandal of how the word took on flesh and came into this broken world and felt all this pain and all of this burden and all of this turmoil, just like you and I feel it, who was tempted in every way and dealt with all of the stressors and pressures of life. And he navigated it. And he's your shepherd. He wants to lead you perfectly in the midst of it and through it. And ultimately, he dies which, as we said in the call to worship, is foolishness to the world. It's a stumbling block. It, it absolutely does not look like God was at work in the culminating moment of redemptive history. What, what is the culminating moment of God's purposes? It's the death of his son. Does it feel like God's purposes have prevailed? Does it feel like God wins? That God is miraculously and gloriously sovereign when his son dies on a Roman cross. No, it does not. The apostles did not think that God's purposes had prevailed. And yet, the fact is, God's purposes absolutely prevailed in that moment. Absolutely. God's purposes are so guaranteed. They are so steadfast. They are so sure. And God says, that has to be your fixation. You have to fix your, your mind, your eyes, your heart, your full attention on this radical mission of the Messiah to come and endure the cross for you, scorning the shame, but it was the joy set before him. And he laid down his life of his own accord so that you and I could be the recipients of God's scandalous mercy. We steward the mystery of that. And then we marvel at the fact that he rose from the dead and he's now in heaven preparing a place for us. We get to live in light of that truth. That is the thing 
that will generate this peace, this mysterious peace that transcends understanding. God says, we preach Christ crucified. This is a stumbling block to the Jews. It's folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's the same message that God's preaching to us here in Judges 14.4. This is from me. I'm seeking an opportunity. Ultimately, God's seeking the opportunity to save his enemies, to put his son in place of his enemies so that the enemies of God don't bear the punishment, but his son does so that we can be forgiven, so that we can receive eternal life and steward the mysteries of God in this life and for all eternity. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for being that, the word, the logos, who took on flesh. For coming into this world, and this is a mystery to us, but being fully human, even you wrestled through. Are there other ways? <laughs> it just sometimes life feels so burdensome. And we really cry out and we really do wonder, is there, is there not a better plan? And yet you show us the glory of submitting. And, and embracing the facts, despite how we so often feel. And we pray, God, that by the power of the Spirit, the prevailing, mysterious third person of the Godhead, uh, that, we would be, that we would be guided uh, step by step along this arduous path of life. Uh, we would be guided um, all the way to the, to the eternal home that you are even now preparing for us, your treasured people. And we thank you and we pray that you would uh, yeah, help us to persevere in the name of Jesus. Amen.